0: David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast.
1: This is P.A. Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, and business. This week, David Marinus discusses his book, Clemente.
0: David Marinus, author of Clemente: The Passion and Grace of Baseball's Last Hero. Why did you want to include the word hero in the title?
1: That's a very good question, and I have to acknowledge that I have some second thoughts about even using the word hero. It's overused. It can become a cliche, particularly when applied to athletes. Most athletes can be an idol for someone, but they're not really heroes. But Roberto Clemente, in one sense, fits the classic definition of a hero which is someone who gives their life in the service of others. That's exactly what he did.
0: So the hero part doesn't apply to his baseball career.
1: Well, it could, but that's not the way I meant it. Um, certainly he was uh, an inspiration to a lot of people. He was the favorite player of many, many kids, including myself. I grew up in Wisconsin with the Milwaukee Braves of Hank Aaron and Warren Spahn and Lou Bradett and Eddie Matthews. From age 11, I thought Roberto Clemente was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. What was
0: it about him that
1: got your attention living in Milwaukee? Um, probably started with the 1960 World Series. when I lived in Madison, by the way, not Milwaukee, oh, but that's all right. Um, and uh, I, I can't explain it entirely. It was partly the, just the way he looked in that old pirate's uniform. Um, his his uh, physical beauty is... The way he, his idiosyncrasies, the way he'd loop the ball back to second base after he caught it, or his incredible arm from deep right field, uh, the way he'd roll his neck. All of these little things, I just thought, had an aura about them that I loved, before I knew anything about him as a human being. When did you decide you wanted to write a book about him? Um, Well, it's my seventh book, and in 1999, after I finished my book on Vince Lombardi, uh, I came up with the idea of two books. Uh, one is on Vietnam in the 60s, and then I wanted to do Clemente after that, knowing that the Vietnam book would be very psychologically important but also difficult um, to deal with all of those vets who endured that, that war. And Clemente was more a labor of love for me. So I, I thought of it in, in before 2000. I started researching it in 2003. Was it fun to write? Absolutely. Um, I, I loved every minute of reporting and writing, although there were some very difficult moments. Um, when I got the internal documents from the Federal Aviation Administration's investigations of the plane crash and the depositions that were taken after that, you know, like most people, I knew that the plane crashed. That's how Clemente died. It might have been overloaded. I had no clue until I saw those internal reports that took a long time for me to get how that plane never should have been allowed to take off. And so writing those final chapters about someone who I loved as a kid, knowing that he died needlessly, um, that was difficult.
0: Why should the plane not have been allowed to take
1: off? This was a rickety DC-7, purchased at a part of Miami International Airport called Cockroach Corner, that's the sign. The owner of the plane was a Tramp airline operator who had 66 violations against him from the FAA. He did not know how to fly the plane. The one time he'd taken it out, he'd taxied it into a ditch. He didn't have a pilot until the last minute. He recruited a pilot who was about to have his license revoked, who had no sleep in 30 hours. They didn't have a flight engineer. They pulled a mechanic off the ramp to be the flight engineer. Uh, The pilot was dozing while the plane was loaded. It's his responsibility to make sure it's a balanced load. It was not only imbalanced but overloaded by 5,000 pounds. And most important, um, this was exactly the type of tramp airline that was under specific orders from the FAA in Washington to be under surveillance every time it took off and landed. It was New Year's Eve, nobody stopped it, it was a death trap rolling down the runway.
0: Where did it take off out of?
1: It flew from San Juan International Airport in Isla Verde, uh, right in San Juan. Um, It went down the runway, just barely got off the last foot of the runway, got up into the air about 200 yards, over the palm trees, out into the ocean about a little less than a mile. The, uh, The air traffic controllers were watching it on their Bright One radar screens. It started to bank to turn back, and then it plummeted into the ocean, broke up into hundreds and hundreds of pieces.
0: Why was Roberto Clemente on the plane?
1: He was on the plane because he was leading a humanitarian mission to Nicaragua. Um, And there were a lot of other reasons that drove him to be on that specific plane, which are also heartbreaking. Um, Clemente had been in Nicaragua a month earlier, um, in November of 1972, leading a Puerto Rican team in the World Baseball Amateur World Series. It was an amateur baseball team. He was there for three weeks, um, staying in the Intercontinental Hotel in downtown Managua, Coincidentally, on another floor, was Howard Hughes, the uh, financier, who, and that was in one of his uh, unusual periods when he was mostly watching James Bond movies in the nude and having his minions test all the soup he was thinking he was being poisoned. Um, Clementi was on another floor. The, uh, Clementi comes back to San Juan after the World Baseball World Series. On December twenty-third, an earthquake leveled Managua. 5,000 or more people killed, hundreds of thousands rendered homeless. Howard Hughes, still there, has his people carry him down the stairs, gets on a lure jet, flies away, never comes back. Roberto Clemente is essentially humanity moving in the other direction. He immediately started, uh, formed a committee in in, in, uh, San Juan. He started raising humanitarian aid, medical supplies, food, and money. They leased a plane, um, and that plane went down to Managua twice. And um, both times Clementi was getting word back that something funny was happening at the airport. It was being met by the military. They would take the aid and put it behind a fence. Anastasio Somoza, the strong man of Nicaragua, was essentially diverting the aid. Clementi was infuriated by this, and he said, if I go, it will get to the people. And that's when they leased that other plane, that DC-7. Clementi got on and flew to his death.
0: Was this unusual for him, or was he involved in humanitarian or charitable causes all through his career?
1: I'm not sure about all through his career, but one of the interesting things about Clemente, he was not a saint. He had his flaws and foibles like anybody else. But you could see his character maturing and growing over the years. Um, When he became more comfortable speaking English, when he became more comfortable as a leader of the pirates and as a figure in Latin America, he started to, sh- to show that more and more. He didn't have an agent telling him to do things. He'd go to hospitals in every National League city, visit sick kids, no publicity. They knew he was coming because they'd written him letters. Um, he didn't have an agent telling him to get on that plane to go to Nicaragua. Uh, starting in 1970, even in English, he gave speeches in which he said, if you have a chance to help others and fail to do so, you're wasting your time on this earth. And that was the motivation that was driving him in his final years.
0: You said he even when he gave speeches
1: in English. Well, did he usually speak Spanish? Well, he, when he was in Puerto Rico or in Latin America, he spoke Spanish. But he, he, he could speak English fairly well by his later years. Um, you know, he died when he was thirty-eight, um, and he preferred speaking in English when he was in the United States. I'm just saying he'd go on the banquet circuit. Um, starting, he, he gave that speech first in Houston at a Tris speaker banquet and then he repeated it in New York and several other places.
0: Was he sensitive about that? You, you re- report that sometimes in newspapers they would write what he would say phonetically.
1: Sensitive is an understatement. <laughs> Clemente had a temper and that infuriated him and um, it, from 1955 I've seen examples all the way through 1967 where he was quoted phonetically. Did you say, in, I got heat. I got a
0: heat. <clears throat> that was N-T-T. after the
1: 1961 All Star game, <clears throat> excuse me, in San Francisco. Um, he drove in the winning run, drove in Willie Mays to win the game. And the headline in the Pittsburgh paper the next day, in the quotation marks, was, I got heat. Um, and Dick Young, a sports writer for the New York Daily News, often quoted Clementi phonetically as well. Um, It made him look sort of, he thought it ridiculed him, made him look stupid. He was a very intelligent man and an incredibly proud person.
0: How did he get along with reporters?
1: Badly. (laughs) Mostly. Um, There was no love lost for a long time. Um, He would, you know, in the dugout, they'd either be afraid to go talk to him or he'd have a flash temper and start screaming at them, you misunderstand me, you quote me wrong, you don't understand what I'm saying, what I'm trying to do, Um, you don't appreciate what I'm doing enough. Um, sometimes, some of the sports writers, like Roy McHugh, a, a very smart sports writer here in town, um, saw that Clemente would actually use that anger as a way, a motivation. <laughs> um, and he had reasons to be angry at some of the sports writers. Other times, it was just he, he had such pride and he felt like he needed to be recognized more. But the interesting thing is that by the time he died, almost every sports writer um, appreciated Clemente he was um, after he'd yell at you he would talk more try to explain himself several sports writers spoke about times where he realized he'd been wrong and apologized how often do athletes apologize Um, and so you see when he died sports writers all over the country saying you know I endured Clemente's wrath and I came out on the other side and what an amazing person he was
0: what would he have been like to be around
1: Um, It depended on who you were and uh, whether he trusted you and what role you played in his life. Uh, He was shy, Um, he was always in search of family and he had a sensibility of an outsider, a black Latino in the quintessential blue collar white ethnic town of Pittsburgh, for starters. Um, So um, he was very, very warm around kids of any color, um, around old people, Um, around anybody who sort of he thought was vulnerable or who reached out to him. He was constantly building this family of strangers. There's a story in the book about a family um, from the Philadelphia area. The daughter was 15 years old, waiting outside of Connie Mack Stadium for autographs. Clemente comes out, he signs her the autograph, she says, muchas gracias. So he starts talking to her in Spanish. She doesn't know any other Spanish, but he he befriends her and they talk for 40 minutes. He misses the bus back to the Philadelphia airport Though the girl and her dad give him him he and Andre Rogers Andres Rogers a ride to the airport. They have a great time in the car All of a sudden this whole family are friends with Clemente He invites them to sit in the seats whenever he's in Philly or Shea Stadium in New York invites him down to San Juan a lot of examples of people in various National League cities, befriending Clemente and getting invited to San Juan in the winters. His house down there in Rio Piedras was full of strangers often. You know, he didn't just invite them, he made sure they came. And so he had that sort of welcoming aside to him, which was quite extraordinary. Um, He also, as I said, he wasn't a saint. He once decked a kid outside of Connie Mack Stadium, the same place, 19-year-old from Mary D., Pennsylvania, um, was trying to get autographs. Apparently, Clemente thought he was threatening in some way. He was getting on the team boss turned around and knocked the kid's teeth out. That happened once, um, 99.8% of the time Clemente was incredibly gracious with fans.
0: Well he came to Pittsburgh in 1954? 55. 55, how did the fans, how did he get along with the fans right in the beginning? Did they Did they? Well, embrace him
1: early on? Um, many of them did, not all. Uh, I did a book on Vince Lombardi and if Uh, If you believed everybody who said they were at the Ice Bowl, the iconic game in 1967, it would have been two million people there. Similarly, in Pittsburgh, everybody now says, oh, I love Roberto Clemente. They didn't all, for various reasons during his time here. But he, generally speaking, felt a great sanctuary when he was with the fans, and particularly kids. I can't tell you how many people who are now middle-aged said, I was 12 or 14 or 10, and Roberto Clemente took time out to line up me and my buddies, you know, outside the stadium and sign autographs and things like that. He was he was very good with the kids in particular.
0: Did you think you were getting a little bit of that when you were interviewing people for his book? Like everybody would say nothing but good things about him now because of what happened to him, the way he uh, died? Know,
1: some, or did but, you get
0: people who were willing to say that they didn't get along with him?
1: Yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, um, all the sports writers definitely told me the stories about the tough times they had with him. I didn't, il- I didn't interview Elroy Face, he didn't want to talk, but he and Clemente disliked each other intensely. Why? Um, I don't know what the roots of that were, but I know it was true. Others like Bob Friend, Vernon Law, um, you know, in that old period of the first Pirates, 1960 Pirates, Maz- Mazeroski and Clemente had a pretty good relationship over the years. They would joke with each other, um, and, uh, and then as the team transformed, you had more and more friends on the team. Um, uh, Vic Power, who was a Puerto Rican buddy of Clemente's, Clemente couldn't fool Vic Power. They came from the same place. Uh, they knew each other's tricks, and so like, if Clemente, actually Power actually um, managed Clemente in the Puerto Rican Winter Leagues for a couple of years. And he wouldn't buy any of Clemente's excuses or his hypochondria or any of that stuff. So he was very open and funny with me in a way that only a friend who has a complete understanding of someone can be.
0: Was he a hypochondriac?
1: Absolutely. I'm one. I know one when I see one. Clemente was a hypochondriac. I mean, he had, you know, he's constantly dying of some fatal illness, and he was always had aches and pains. Some of them were Absolutely legitimate. He'd been in a bad car accident in 1954 in the winter. um, And uh, that caused neck and back problems that led to arthritis. Um, And so that's why he would always roll his neck like that and have that stiffness. Um, And he did get malaria once and lost more than 20 pounds in the winter, probably from the pigs on his hog farm in La Finca in in Puerto Rico. but Clemente would say, I'm no hypochondriac. Hypo- hypochondriacs don't produce. I blanking produce. And he did play more games than any pirate in history, um, which is what really counts. Um, and his teammates would joke that when he was really complaining the most, uh, when he'd come into the locker room and said, man, I feel terrible today, that's when he'd go four for four.
0: <laughs> did he miss many games? I mean, he played a lot of games, but he played well, a lot he of missed,
1: years. Yeah, I mean, there were a couple of seasons where he played missed 40 or 50 games Um, many seasons where he played 140 to 150 games so um, and uh, he didn't miss any World Series games he played in 14 and got hits in all 14.
0: Were there any Latinos on the Pirates when he joined the team?
1: Uh, Well there were a couple with him at that point Uh, Roman Mejias, a Cuban um, was there on and off that year Carlos Benir was here for a little while um, but it was basically one or two per team. Um, and, uh, they were, they, you know, he felt essentially alone or apart.
0: Were there many Latinos in the league? Was no, it was, it was
1: about one or two per team, max. Clemente wasn't the first. Uh, he was one, he was in the first wave of Latinos. Um, and he was a black Latino, which was also, um, you know, there were Latinos in Major League Baseball before Jackie Robinson. There's no distinction uh, officially on color in Latin America. Um, in Puerto Rico, it didn't matter what color you were. You played baseball. A lot of the Negro League stars from the U.S. came down to Puerto Rico long before they could play here, starting with Josh Gibson, um, and played there. Um, whether they were white or black made no difference. So Clemente, coming from that culture to the United States, faced overt segregation for the first time. Where, where was that, that he would have faced that? Florida. Spring most. training? Spring training, Florida. For who? Uh, for well, starting with the the Dodgers, he he was his first spring training was with the Dodgers, 1954. They're the team that signed him as a bonus, but the Dodgers were somewhat unique, and they had what was called Dodger Town. So all the players stayed there. When he came to the Pirates, they were in Fort Myers, Florida, a completely racist, segregated town. So that by 1960, imagine being Roberto Clemente, one of the better stars on the world champion pirates going home to Puerto Rico, being hailed as a hero, carried off the airplane, uh, regaled all winter, come back to Fort Myers in the spring of 1961. The the city holds a celebration for the world champion pirates. No blacks can attend unless they're the waiters. Clemente's not there. The team uh, has an annual spring golf outing at a country club that doesn't allow blacks. Um, the team stays in a hotel downtown. Clementi is in a rooming house on the other side of town. That's what he faced.
0: Did he write about that or talk to people about that?
1: He didn't write about it, but he certainly talked about it. And uh, there was a campaign that spring of 1961 led by Wendell Smith, uh, a journalist who'd started with the Pittsburgh Courier in Pittsburgh and was then working writing a column for the Courier and also working for a mainstream paper in Chicago called Chicago's American, and also a fellow here named Bill Nunn, Jr., who was um, the son of the editor of the Courier. He was writing sports then. They began a campaign to rid Florida of its spring training segregation, um, wrote column after column that spring, and really talked to all the black players. Clemente was very outspoken. He said, you know, we're in prison down here. We can't go anywhere. We can't go to the beaches. We can't do these things. And, and Clemente also um, uh, dealt with Joel Brown, the general manager, um, to try to, what would happen is the team bus would go from town to town and stop at a restaurant for a meal. The white guys would go off, eat their meal, bring sandwiches back to, the, to Clemente and the few black players. Clemente said, I'm not begging. He asked Joel Brown to get them a station wagon so they could at least drive where they wanted to go until the, until Florida was desegregated. How was he discovered in the first place? He played softball in Puerto Rico. He loved baseball from the earliest age. Had a brilliant arm that he got not from his dad Melchor but from his mother Luisa, who, um, among other things, was a butcher and she could haul like ninety pound carcasses on her right shoulder. Clemente once said that when she was 80 years old, she could still throw a strike from a major league uh, mound to home plate. Um, He he started in softball. That's where he got his basket catch. Um, Then he was, at age 18, signed to his first professional contract with the Santurce Congrejeros of the Puerto Rican Winter League. And uh, that was an incredible team. The bat boy on the team was a guy named Orlando Cepeda, <laughs> a Hall of Famer himself. And I interviewed Orlando Cepeda, and he said, yeah, before games, I would stand at home plate and take throws from the outfield. And I said, well, who was Toronto? He said, oh, a couple guys, Willie Mays and Roberto Clemente. They were all on that, that Santurce team. Um, Al Campanas, who was in the Dodgers system, was uh, managing uh, in Cuba, and came over to Puerto Rico to scout, and signed and saw Clemente. Wrote a rave uh, scouting report.
0: You have it in your book here. That's it's right. a lot of A's and A pluses <laughs> in each category. Yeah,
1: from the Dodgers, he did. Um, this is the Al Campanis
0: who had some problems later on in his career for having said he something. Said, on yeah, one yeah of the that the
1: blacks didn't have the necessities to be managers. I mean, yeah. Well, everybody's complicated. Um, you know, I mean, Campanis uh, spent a lot of time in Latin America and and um, actually was very close to uh, Pedrín Zorilla, the uh, owner of the Santurce Congrejeros. Um, Campana said something much later in his career to his great regret. Um, but at that time he, he raved about Clemente. The Dodgers signed him to a bonus. Um, he played for one year in the Dodgers' system. They did not keep him on their 40-man roster. They sent him up to Montreal to play for the Montreal Royals in the International League um, and essentially sort of tried to hide him, which was a pretty stupid thing to think about. Later, um, one of them explained that they really just signed him so he wouldn't go to the Dodgers, I mean to the Giants. They didn't want him playing with Willie Mays. So, so they signed him, didn't keep him. And after that one year, um, because he wasn't kept on the roster, he was uh, drafted by the Pirates, the worst team in baseball, a pathetic team um, and there, he had been scouted by Howie Hake, who was the great Latin American scout of the Pirates, uh, working for branch Ricky in that era.
0: I have to quote uh, you're in your book you write about uh, from a magazine in 1950s magazine you say the atrocious, the atrocities they the pirates committed under the guise of Major League Baseball were monstrous. Pirates pitchers threw the ball in the general direction of home plate and ducked. Pirate fielding was so graceful that the team gave the opposition four or five outs per inning. When the club's top minor league manager wanted to scare one of his underachieving players, he threatened to send him up to Pittsburgh. (laughs) And that was the team uh, that—that
1: was the team that Clemente Clemente arrived at in 1955.
0: How did he do in
1: 1955? He did okay. He, He didn't tear up the league. He got off to a hot start and then tailed off. Um, he had some injury problems. He, he really didn't blossom until 1960. You know, that's a long time. And the, one of the interesting things is there were two great players who came into the league in 1955, both from the Dodgers, both Hall of Famers, both brilliant with an aura unlike any other player, and both took that same length of time to develop, Roberto Clemente and Sandy Koufax. Um, Clemente had one pretty good year in the 50s and showed a lot of promise he, because of that great arm of his, although it was a little bit wild in those years. As a matter of fact, several people told me that they would try to sit behind third base because they could get balls that Clemente threw over the head of the third baseman. Um, and he, he was, uh, a, you know, he'd swing at anything. Um, eventually, uh, it didn't matter. He could hit anything. He'd say, it's not a bad ball if I can hit it. Um, but it was 1960. The year that the Pirates won the pennant and the World Series, the Clementi started to blossom. And from then on, he was awesome. Can you talk about the 1960 team? Who were his teammates? Yeah, it was quite a team. Uh, old roly-poly Smoky Burgess behind the plate. Um, uh, Rocky Nelson and Dick Stewart, Dr. Strange Glove, at first base. Mazaroski coming into his own that year at second base. Dick Grote, steady Dick Rowe, who won the MVP award at short. Don Hoke, Tiger Hoke at third base. Uh, the outfield had Bill Verdon in center. And anybody in that era will say that Verdon was as good in the outfield as Willie Mays. As a fielder, he was incredible. He covered a huge ground. Clementian right, Verdon in center, nothing got in. Um, in left field, you had Bob Skinner, um, who was a, a good left-handed hitter. On the mound, uh, Bob Friend and Vernon Law, Deacon Law. And Elroy Face is the relief pitcher. It was, it was quite a team, actually. They were solid everywhere. They, were, they, you know, they didn't have that brilliance, but they had a lot of gutty players. Clemente was an essential part of the team. He led the team in RBIs that year. In uh, April and May and into June, he was a terror. He really helped the Pirates get off to that incredible hot, you know, hot start that, that helped them win the pennant. Um, solid all year, batted over 300 every month. And got a hit in every game in the World Series.
0: But in the World Series, they played the 1960 Yankees, who are thought to be one of the greatest teams of all
1: time. Oh,
0: yeah. How did they manage to beat the Yankees? Uh,
1: it was just a, a classic uh, David versus Goliath. The Yankees, um, you know, they had Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle and Yogi Berra and Moose Gowrin, um, just big boppers. And they had Whitey Ford on the mound. Casey Stengel was managing, he was last year's manager, and Yankee fans will tell you that he made a crucial mistake, which is that he didn't start Whitey Ford in the first game. Whitey Ford pitched two shutouts against the Pirates, uh, but he didn't get the chance to pitch three games because for some reason uh, Stengel started Terry in the first game. So uh, it was a seven-game series. The Yankees won their three games that they won by a total score of 38-3. to and yet they lost in seven games. The Pirates had a gritty team. They, they you know, um, they they played tough and they'd win the close games. And so that's how they prevailed. And they won in the in the um, seventh game. One, I think, probably the greatest game, seventh game in World Series history. They won it by outslugging the Yankees. They won ten to nine. Um, and with Maz's you know, forever remembered. The bottom of the ninth, home run to win
0: it. You you say in your book that after that he essentially didn't join in the celebration. After the Roberto Clemente did not join in the celebration. Clemente did that. not.
1: Um, I would seen reports that that uh, that he hadn't, and, but I didn't really know the whole story until I I found the archives of the Pittsburgh Courier, the black newspaper in uh, in Pittsburgh of that era, and Bill Nunn Jr., the sports editor. Um, I found a column that he wrote about that specific, after that seventh game, Nun was with Clemente. Um, and what happened was Nun said, aren't you going to go to the party? That, you know, all the guys are going to celebrate. Clemente said, no, I, I want to go home to Puerto Rico. Uh, Nunn said, well, why not? And Clemente said, well, I went to the last party. I felt sort of alone or apart. I didn't, you know, no reason for me to go. So he packed his bags, and he and Nun walked out of the stadium, they were engulfed by Pirates fans. It took them an hour to get from the stadium to Nunn's car, Nunn was going to drive him to the airport on his way back to Puerto Rico. And uh, Clemente felt more at home with the fans than he did with, with many of his teammates at that point. Was he mostly a loner with his teammates? Not entirely a, lo- a loner, but, um, and it's not, it's not their fault, it's just culture, you know, I mean, they were all hard playing, hard drinking, crew cut white guys. Clemente was a a somewhat shy, proud, sometimes apparently aloof uh, black Latino. Um, So he he just, it took a while for for that to to work its way out as the team transformed as well. Um, As I said, there there wasn't hostility except in a few cases, Um, but it just wasn't a comfort level for him. Um, And so he felt more at home with the fans or in uh, Puerto Rico. Did he live in Puerto Rico during the off season all the time? Absolutely. He went home every every winter. Um, he loved to go home. You know, it was almost like a, a migrant worker coming to the United States to work, but his home was always Puerto Rico. All three of his sons were born in Puerto Rico. Clemente would go back and play uh, every year in the in the winter leagues. The Pirates didn't want him to. They offered him bonuses to not play Um, They didn't understand why he did, but if you see how his life progressed and how much Puerto Rico meant to him, of course he would play. That was his home. Those people adored him. They looked up to him, and he didn't want to let them down.
0: Did he mentor other players from Puerto Rico? Yeah, well, not just from Puerto Rico,
1: from Cuba, from Venezuela. Clemente, from a pretty early age, um, was a... A leader among Latinos, even if he wasn't yet with the Pirates, a leader. That took a little longer. Um, but Tony Taylor, uh, who played second base for the Cubs and Phillies, um, many Latinos from, from all over, C- Taylor was a Cuban, they said that, that Clemente was the guy. When they were playing the Pirates, they'd all go out to eat afterwards, they'd talk. Clemente was always talking, um, giving them advice. And so, yes, from, from that time to today, Clemente is a leader among Latino ballplayers. Uh,
0: did he become a team leader with the Pirates later on in his career? He did.
1: It took a while. The team transformed. Um, by 1971, they fielded the first all-black and Latino team in Major League history. Um, uh, they, you know, Willie Stargell was also a leader, but he looked up to Clemente. Manny Sanguin the catcher, thought of Clemente as his big brother. Steve Blass, uh, the pitcher, um, adored Clemente. He said, we were all just ball players. Clemente was a prince. Um, Dave Giusti, the relief pitcher, they'd, they'd uh, tease each other mercilessly, calling each other Dago. <laughs> you know, clemente say, I'm Italian too, you know, Clemente. <laughs> um, and uh, yes, he was, by the late 60s, he was the, the team leader in every sense.
0: You quote people as saying that he carried himself like royalty or, or like a, a fine thoroughbred racehorse. Like he had great pride.
1: Oh, absolutely. What? Uh, where did that come from? Because he grew up. Uh, did he grow up poor? Well, he grew up. He wasn't the poorest of the poor. His dad worked in the sugarcane uh, fields, was a foreman. So there were people poorer than the Clementes. They didn't have any money. Um, you know, his mother and father worked their whole lives. They didn't have any time to celebrate or do anything else. Um, Clemente had an innate pride. He says it came from his parents. Um, And um, some of it you can't explain. Some people are just like that. He was. From an early age, he had a very strong self-identity, which radiated to the world. Who taught him baseball? Uh, His first coach was Roberto Marin, who coached softball, who was the husband of his his uh, teacher in in, uh, junior high. Um, He taught himself essentially, I mean he, from an earliest age in the barrio of San Antonio, Carolina, all the neighbors said Clemente always had something in his hand. They'd call it a ball, it was made out of a sock or tape or whatever, always throwing. Um, He played, uh, he also uh, threw the javelin in high school, not too much, but enough that that, he said that helped develop his strong right arm. then, uh, you know, at age 18, he started with the Congrejeros, Um, largely self-taught. He played in the outfield, as I said, with Willie Mays. Mays did not teach him the basket catch, though. He was already doing that. Um, his first idol was Monty Irvin, who uh, had been a Negro League star and got a, finally got into the majors with the New York Giants late in his career. Um, Clemente adored Monty Irvin. Where was
0: Monty Irvin from?
1: Monty Irvin was from New Jersey, but he played in the Puerto Rican Winter Leagues for the San Juan Senadores. And so Clemente would take the bus from Carolina, 15 miles, to Sixto Escobar Stadium, where the Senadores played, stand outside the stadium, wait, hoping Monty Irvin would walk by, and let him carry his suit bag into the stadium, and that's how Clemente got in to, to, to watch. Another major leaguer, Juan Pizarro, also lived in that area. He said, he told me he would shimmy up the palm trees to look down and watch the games. Uh, I interviewed Monty Irvin 50 years later, really classy guy who's in the Hall of Fame himself. And he said, uh, yeah, I remember young Roberto. I, I taught him how to throw. And, uh, of course, he quickly surpassed me. You say in the book his his full name was Roberto Clemente Walker? Yes, that's the Spanish. Uh, In in Spanish, um, the final name is the mother's name, Um, but you go by the first two names. So it's Roberto Clemente Walker, um, but the Walker is dropped. But people in the U.S. don't understand that. So Clemente's Hall of Fame plaque for years read Roberto Walker Clemente. It was wrong.
0: (laughs) Uh, And what is Momen,
1: M-O-M-E-N? Momen was his nickname. Um, he, from a very early age, uh, young Roberto had a habit in his house of whenever somebody wanted him to do something, he 'd say, "Momentito, momentito," meaning "Wait a minute, wait a minute." <laughs> and so his cousins started calling him "Moment." Um, and uh, it, be, it was his nickname so much so that his first bats, the Louisville sluggers that he used in his early years, said "Moment, Clemente." And his family always called him that.
0: Can I ask you a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, You said this this is your seventh book, you said? Yes. And Vince Lombardi was
1: one? I've written uh, four larger books. The first one was a um, first in his class, the biography of Bill Clinton and Vince Lombardi, uh, When Pride Still Mattered. Uh, They Marched into Sunlight, a book about Vietnam and America in 1967, and then Clemente. My three other books are about... uh, Newt Gingrich and the Republican Revolution, and about Bill Clinton. And so,
0: do you have a day job?
1: I'm an associate editor at the Washington Post. What does that involve? Uh, that's what my editors want to know. <laughs> no, uh, I've I've worked at the Post for 30 years. Um, after I started writing books in 1993, I realized I loved writing books. Um, since then, I've 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 uh, Edited certain people at the Post, mentored a lot of the younger reporters, covered uh, campaigns, but uh, more and more moving toward just writing books. And the Post has been incredibly gracious about that. They want to keep the affiliation. um, And uh, so uh, we keep it.
0: Now, you have something, have done something that will probably end up in the first sentence of your obituary. You are a Pulitzer Prize winner.
1: Yeah, I won the Pulitzer for covering Clinton in 1992. It was the 93 national reporting Pulitzer. Did that change anything for you? Um, probably it gave me some of that freedom to do what I wanted and write books. Other than that, not until my obituary. <laughs> um, I mean, it was, you know, I'm, I'm not, I mean, it was thrilling. Um, but it's capricious. I've been a finalist three other times. And some of those were probably for better work than I did the time I won it. That's the way life is. So, you know, awards are, I would never denigrate them. They're wonderful, but your worth is not from the award. It's from your work. How'd you learn to write? Uh, It's the only thing I can do. I'm completely incompetent at everything else in life. Um, But luckily, my dad was a newspaper man. My mother was a book editor. My three siblings were all scholars, and I was the dumb one in the family. I followed my dad into newspapers, and uh, that's what I've been doing for my whole life. Lucky that I can do, the one thing I can do, I love to do. I wanted to be a shortstop for the Milwaukee Braves. I played through high school, but I, I couldn't hit the curve. Are you a big sports fan? Oh, I love sports, absolutely. I love baseball. Um, Most as a pure sport, but I I mean, you know, I'm into football and basketball and track and um, even soccer sometimes. Why are sports so big in America? Um, Because they have a natural drama to them. Uh, People's lives are, I mean, no matter what your life, you know, it has a daily routine, a lot of boredom to it, and a lot of frustrations. And you can divert that to... uh, an actual event where there's a winner and a loser. Um, and you can identify with your team whether it wins or loses. So that drama is something you don't get in the rest of life. And you know, it can be excessive. Um, you know, one of the reasons I wrote about Vince Lombardi, even though I loved those Green Bay Packers, um, is because of the mythology of competition and success in American life. Lombardi was utterly misrepresented by all sides. You know, he was supposed to have said, winning isn't everything, it's the only thing. He never said it. I found out that it was first uttered by a 13-year-old actress in a John Wayne movie who was talking to Donna Reed who was playing a social worker. Um, and then it, just like every comic statement in baseball is attributed to Yogi Berra, um, every motivational uh, winning quotation is, is attributed to Vince Lombardi. Um, so I wanted to study that. You know, the, some people... I would call Lombardi a symbol of the excesses of win at any cost. Um, Other people would adopt him as this sort of symbol of the old way and hard discipline and God family in the Green Bay Packers. That wasn't true either. It was Packers first, God second, family a pretty distant third. So I like to study mythology, and that's how I got into that.
0: Now the subtitle of your Lombardi book is When Pride Still Matters? That's the title. Oh, that's the title. is, is there any, any thread you get between Lombardi and Clemente? I mean, you're right about how, what a proud person Clemente is. And does it sure. take that to succeed in, well, in sports?
1: Well, uh, even Clinton, I'd say, you know, as a, that's a pretty odd trio. Clinton, Lombardi, Clemente. What did they have in common? Enormous willpower, will to succeed, to overcome obstacles. All three of them did. Did Roberto Clemente feel appreciated Um, no. (laughs) I mean, not uh, not to the extent that he wanted to be appreciated. Not until 1971, when he took the Pirates to their second World Series. Before the first game in Baltimore, he went out to eat with his brother-in-law. They ate clams. Clemente got sick. Food poisoning. He needed fluids at the hotel. Um, The next day, he reported to the game and told Jose Pagan, his teammate, just get on my back. I'm going to carry this team. They lost the first two games, but Clemente was right. He did carry them. He batted 4-14. He made some unforgettable throws from right field. Um, He hustled um, the base pass, played brilliantly in every way. And that finally, after 17 seasons um, in baseball, he felt that he did get the recognition that he always thought he deserved. Did he think he was the best? Uh, there was a, a New York Times Magazine article that year that had him saying, I am the best. It was more an expression of nobody's better than me. You know, he had that incredible pride and in, in sense of self. Um, he certainly thought nobody had a better arm than he did. In the book, I I talk about how even at, after his final season, when he went down to Nicaragua to manage that team, a Nicaraguan sports writer wrote about a young Cuban outfielder, he said, had the arm of Clemente. Clemente was furious when he read it, and he ordered the sports writer down to the dugout and said, how can you say that? Nobody has Clemente's arm. Um, So he he certainly didn't think anyone was better than he was.
0: Did he blow up at odd times? I mean, you you write about a time when a a sports writer asked him about a home run he hit. Is that the longest home run you hit, and it caused him to just explode?
1: Well, it was because um, he was sensitive to the fact that he wasn't a home run hitter. He hit 240 home runs in his career. Part of it was because of Forbes Field. Um, part of it was just because of the way he hit. He 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 hit in the classic style, through the box into right field. Um, Ferguson Jenkins once told me, he said, he jokingly said, you know, there were two left-handed pull hitters in the National League that scared the heck out of me, Willie McCovey and Roberto Clemente. Clemente's a right-hander, but he could line he to it. Right to yeah. right.
0: Were there any pitchers who just dominated him, who he had a, just couldn't hit? And, and vice versa, were there any pitchers who were great pitchers who he just crushed?
1: Well, Tom Seaver claims that he dominated Clemente. <laughs> and um, he, he pitched pretty well against Clemente. Um, he crushed everybody. He, Don Drysdale was... See, baseball, reduced to its most elemental thing, is deals with fear between the pitcher and the hitter. And... A lot of batters, the ones who have trouble, are afraid of the pitch in some subconscious way. A lot of pitchers were afraid of Clemente because he'd hit these line shots. He broke Bob Gibson's leg with one line shot. Gibson, so tough, he he pitched to th- three more pitches before he came out of the game and came back and pitched later that year. Um, he knocked on Drysdale out of baseball. Drysdale said, um, with a line drive that that went by his ear and Drysdale touched his ear and blood was coming out. He retired five days later. He was just afraid of Clemente. Um, so, And the other thing about Clemente is there was really no way to pitch him. I, I interviewed Earl Weaver, the manager of the Orioles, and he said, you know, our scouts followed the Pirates for several weeks before the World Series, and they had this plan for pitching Clemente. Um, we tried to pitch him inside. We tried to pitch him outside. Eventually, I just told my pitchers, just throw it down the middle of the plate. <laughs> What type of bat did he use? Ah, I love the bat story. Um, I interviewed the, the man at uh, Hillerick and Bradsby who was in charge of bats during that period. And Clemente, for most of his career, the way uh, Louisville slugger bats are, are categorized, um, it's with a letter and then a number. The letter signifies the first letter of the name of the player who first used that bat. The number signifies how many other players have used it since, so that a Stan Musial was like an M117, the Stan Musial model. Clemente used a U1, named after Bartholomew Frenchy U-Halt, who played one season, about 34 games during World War II. It was a 36-ounce bat that didn't have a knob on it. It was a big old knobless bat, and that's the bat that Clemente used to get most of his 3,000 hits. When did he get his 3,000th hit? He got it on September 30th, 1972, his last at-bat of his final season. It was a double to left center off John Matlack.
0: And um, did he plan on continuing to play? At what point in his career was he? Was he t- well, tailing he was, off or was, was he still? No, he was after his 18th
1: team? season. Uh, that year he batted over 300, as usual. Um, He'd played fewer games that year, but he wasn't ready to retire, and one reason, he talked about retiring, but again, going back to the bats, the the fellow in charge of the bats said he'd already, Clemente had already ordered his new models for the next few years. So he was, he was still going to play. Uh, He was in great shape. Uh, You know, despite his hypochondria or whatever you want to call it, Clemente always took brilliant care of himself. His waist size was the same at age 38 as it was at age 21. It was a 31-inch waist. Um, he didn't lift weights. He, he did have sort of a new-age sensibility. He would drink these concoctions from a blender that nobody else wanted to go near. Um, he, was, he, was very, he was an amateur chiropractic. Uh, he worked on everybody else. He could fix their backs, back pains. Um, he carried ointments, actually, in his bag to do that. Um, He was uh, great with massages. His wife, Vera, in a very evocative statement, said it was as though he had eyes on his fingertips. Um, So he took great care of himself, and he could have definitely played for as long as he wanted, up to probably age 42. Um, But in the story of Clemente, um, exactly 3,000 hits is part of the mythology of his memory.
0: We didn't talk about his family at all, his wife. How did he
1: meet his wife? Uh, he met her at a drugstore in Carolina, uh, his hometown. Um, he saw her walking down the street. She was going to the drugstore. Uh, he got into the drugstore to be there when she arrived because she, he thought she was stunning. Um, she was afraid of him. Was he a big baseball star? He was already a star. He, this was 1965. She didn't know it. She didn't know anything about baseball. Um And it probably was about a three-month wooing of her. She had very strict parents. Her dad was incredibly suspicious of Clemente, the great baseball star, who was a a very handsome man, always surrounded by women. Um, And uh, he said to uh, the father, or uh, Zabala, said to Clemente, why do you want my daughter? You could go down to the street corner and get ten women. And Clemente said, you're absolutely right, but she's the one I want. And they got married. Um, It was a huge celebration. It was like a saint's day in Carolina when they got married. Um, They were only together for seven years before he died. Do they have any kids? Three boys, uh, all of whom were alive when Clemente died, all youngsters at the time, Roberto Jr., Luis, and Enrique. Um, Roberto Jr., Uh, went on to play baseball himself, not nearly as good as his dad, didn't make the majors, got injured. Um, For a while was the Spanish-language broadcaster for the Yankees. Uh, Luis uh, stayed in San Juan, uh, got a college degree, very uh, professional person down there, who's now trying to revive uh, Clemente's dream of a sports city uh, in San Juan. Enrique, the youngest, who was maybe two or three when Clemente died, was the one most haunted by it. Never flown, won't fly. Basically a, a recluse uh, living with his mother. And of the three, uh, they say that Enrique is the one who looks the most like his dad. Did they live with him in Pittsburgh during the baseball season? Yes, often. Where? Um, they lived in various apartments. Not always, but for most of the time, they except um, when they had started to go to school, they'd go back to, to uh, San Juan, um, but They lived in various apartments um, around around the city. Was he religious? Uh, His mother was very religious. His his mother was Baptist. His father was Catholic. His mother's favorite saying was, life is nothing, life is fleeting, only God makes man happy. Uh, Clemente often repeated that phrase as well. The father was Catholic, but not very Catholic, according to the other sons. Um, and uh, Clemente was not overtly religious, but had a very spiritual nature to him. Did he smoke or drink? No. Um, he did not smoke. He drank very rarely. Um, one of the things that I'm an agnostic about, you know, people say, what about steroids, blah, blah. Well, there were no steroids then, but there were greenies, which were uppers. And I don't know, it's possible. That most, a lot of the pirates did take them during parts of that period, particularly in the later 60s, early 70s. Clemente possibly did. Um, they weren't illegal, um, but they were, they were fairly common in that era. Um, they certainly wouldn't have helped him because he couldn't sleep anyway. And if he was on a, you know, a greenies, I mean, he, generally he didn't sleep from about midnight to 5 a.m. Uh, He was up doing something, working on, he was an amateur woodworker. He played the Hammond organ. Uh, He had a lot of hobbies um, or just thinking. Um, He wouldn't start sleeping until about five in the morning. they would have to close the shades and tape the shades shut, turn on the air conditioner, and then he could sleep.
0: Was that considered a problem, or was it just a way of life for him?
1: It was not a problem um, for him. It might have been for Vera. (laughs) Uh, but uh, no, it was just his, he, had, he was a creature of habits, and that was one of his habits. What was he like to manage? Well, he never had a great relationship with Danny Murtaugh, who managed him most of his career, during two different eras. Um, Murtaugh was, um, they called him a dark Irishman. Um, he had a sense of humor, but he, he and Clemente never quite saw eye to eye. Um but Murtaugh in the end said Clemente was by far the greatest player he'd ever seen. They did you know, he was they were around each other enough that they had a uh, you know, the mutual understanding and Murtaugh appreciated Clemente. In the early days, Murtaugh thought that Clemente was a hypochondriac or not playing enough, and um, but they worked it out and Clemente did play more games than any pirate in history, and most of them for Danny Murtaugh. Uh and the in the middle years, he had his best year for Harry Walker, um, who everybody thought would be not get along with Clemente. They actually did get along, and Clemente uh, had his most valuable player season in 1966 playing for him. His final year, he played for his teammate, Bill Verdon, and they, were, they got along well.
0: Who did you interview for this book who you just found fascinating?
1: Uh, many, many people. Um, actually, the most fun day I ever had was interviewing Vic Power, um, who was Clemente's buddy and another great flashy player for the Cleveland Indians mostly during that era. Power had this booming laugh. He'd go, oh, baby, you know, and he'd tell stories about Clemente and, you know, he's the one who, Clemente and Power had opposite personalities, particularly as they faced racism. Power would transform it into humor. He'd say, uh, tell, you know, some of the stories were apocryphal, but they're all stories to show how he dealt with it. He'd say, you know, I went to this restaurant in Florida, and the waitress said, uh, we don't serve Negroes here. Power said, that's okay, I don't eat Negroes. I just want some rice and beans. Or, you know, I got stopped for walking against a don't walk sign, and I told the cop, well, you know, I thought all those signs were just for whites only. Um, just story after story like that I had, it was down in, in San Juan we were sitting in a Starbucks for about four hours just listening to Vic power it was a real treat um, in in Pittsburgh I had a great day spent with Bill Nunn jr. Um, the uh, the sports writer for the courier who later went on to work for the Steelers for many years and he was really valuable because he drove me all the way around the hill district and Sheenley Heights and it told me where everything was and who lived where and gave me a real sense of Black Pittsburgh, which I wanted for the book. Um, among the pirate players, I would say Steve Blass was, was just great, uh, both as a storyteller and a really nice human being, very gracious and, and full of stories about Clemente. Those were some of my favorites. Uh,
0: were there stories you learned that you were surprised at, things you didn't expect to find about Clemente?
1: Many. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I knew he had a temper. I didn't know he'd decked a kid, you know, I, you know, outside of Connie Mac Stadium. Um, so that story surprised me. Um, the bat story surprised me, you know, the French u halt model. The whole plane crash, I knew that it was an overloaded plane, but I didn't know the details until I got those records from the FAA. Just devastating. Um... The way that he would make this larger family and invite strangers down to Puerto Rico, that surprised me. Um, but, you know, even though I loved Clementi as a kid without knowing him as a person, I, I've dealt enough over the years with politicians and sports figures that I know that nobody's a saint, you know, so, so I wasn't expecting Clementi to, to be totally a great person. Um, or I knew that he would have flaws, so anything like that didn't surprise me. I'm not naive about that kind of thing, but I wasn't disappointed in the end. Um, the Cl- Clementi, as a real person, and Clementi as a mythological person, are both forces for good in a world that doesn't have all that much. How old were you when he died? Uh, 1972. I was 23. I was living in my hometown of Madison, Wisconsin. My first journalism job, I was on the radio, WIBA radio in Madison. I had my own sh- news show on weekends and holidays. So I was in the station on New Year's Eve, 1972. It was this little cubbyhole office with an old teletype machine, clicking, clacking. Bells rang for an alarm, went over read it. Plane Goes Down in the Atlantic, Clemente Aboard. I devoted my entire newscast to Roberto Clemente. Did you ever get to see him play? Yeah. I saw him twice at County Stadium. I never saw him at Forbes Field or in Pittsburgh. You know, I mean, I was just a kid in, in Wisconsin. Um, and um, But I watched him on television a lot. I followed him in the box scores. Ironically, my other favorite player was Vic Power these two black Latinos from Puerto Rico. So they were the guys for me, and I followed them both in their different leagues.
0: After going through the whole process of writing this book, if, if you could talk to
1: Roberto Clemente, what would you ask him? A um, couple things, why he got on the plane <laughs> um, and um, whether he felt uh, that at peace in his final years and whether, whether he would ever feel at peace. You have another book coming up? I always have another book. (laughs) I I love writing books. My next book is going to be Mixed Politics and Sports. It's going to be about the Cold War and the explosion of the modern world at the 1960 Summer Olympics in Rome.
0: We've been talking about this book, about Roberto Clemente, and we have been talking with the author, David Marinus. Thank you very
1: much. Thank you, Brian.
0: You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.